0: Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris.
1: Hello and welcome to episode five of Sprogcast, all about life and birth. How does it feel to be a new family in the 21st century? This broadcast is brought to you by Pinter & Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga. And you'll find them at PinterAndMartin.com. I'm Mark Harris.
0: And I'm Karen Hall. Coming up today, we're chatting with postnatal doula Naomi Kemeny, as well as Emma Cantrell, founder of the Social Enterprise First Days charity. Um, What have you been up to lately, Mark?
1: Me? What have I been up to? Well, not to labour the point... Ah. Excuse the pun. But, yeah, the book is done. It's in the bag. It's 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 a wrap, Karen. You've, you've got a launch date. Yeah, I think, well, we're, g- we're going to have a, a London uh, soiree, I think, on the 24th, where people are invited to at Pinter and Martins. So I'm quite excited about that. I think there's room for 50. I shall hope to be there. Yeah, but I think I'll have the book in my hand in about... Are oh, you coming? I hope so. Oh, brilliant. You'll be very welcome. Uh, I, I think... Um, what I was going to say now. I think I'll have the book in my hand in about three weeks' time, which, which for me, uh, I set that up as a kind of a goal. You know, the idea of having the actual book in my hand. I remember reading a little snippet that I'd written for uh, that Maddie had quoted, not Maddie, although Maddie's book is brilliant. There's another book on on uh, hypno birthing in that series, yeah. And I've got a couple of quotes in there, and I'm in the index, and I remember that feeling <laughs> of elation. Of just reading your name in print. I don't know. Nason. And,
0: you, and you, you let me have a sneak preview of the forward by Dennis Walsh, which
1: was really cool. I did. Don't tell anyone I let you sneak the forward. Oh, you did? I just,
0: I just did. Leave it in.
1: Leave <laughs> it in. Gotta be honest, his forward took my breath away, to be honest. It was a very kind forward. And, and coming from uh, an academic uh, who has spent his academic life. Uh, working in the whole area, of place of birth. It was very moving to me and, and I'm deeply grateful to him.
0: So I've I've been busy promoting Sprogcast. Um, we now have a Twitter account, sure that which you can find at Sprogcast. I'm busy trying to build that up. Um, I met a, another parenting podcaster, a yeah. pair of them, at the Cavisham Festival in Reading. Um, they're the Scummy Mummies. You can find them at scummymummies.com. Yeah. They're comedians, are they? Um, Ellie Gibson and Helen Thorne, and they did a little funny um, show at the festival, and they gave me a really nice postcard with their details oh. on, and I thought we need postcards. Yeah, we do. Going to the MSLC this afternoon, and generally winding down for some holidays. Rock oh, and roll. And how's Facebook looking? Have we had any feedback? Uh, well, I
1: think we've had we had some comments from Milky Moments. Uh, they said that episode four was informative, and at the same time pleasingly. Waffly.
0: Well, that's you, obviously. I'm informative and you're pleasingly waffly. don't know
1: whether that's a compliment
0: or not. Milky Moments, I think, are they one of the um, Pinter and Martin authors?
1: They are indeed. I, I think they are in the Pinter and Martin stable.
0: Right. Well, Pinter and Martin are getting a lot of mentions today. They will be happy. <laughs> um, on their own Facebook page, one of their followers, Ellie Stanley Gradwell, described us as much better than Ant and Dec. I've also got a comment on, on Twitter already. Really? Da, da, da. Uh, from Catherine Woodbury who says she's listening today and it's great stuff yeah, that's
1: nice that's nice it does gladden me that we're offering people a resource that they're finding useful we crave in many ways feedback from the audience you know question attention give us attention, give us attention. please give us give attention. us attention but the, you know that way we can feed in the things we do to the questions and concerns that people have
0: and I feel that's what we're doing today with our um, theme because it was a request on Facebook to talk about um, the emotional roller coaster becoming a new family yeah. so today we are talking about how it feels to become a family for the first time we're planning a later episode on mental health issues around pregnancy and parenthood but today we're talking about the range of normal experience Um, and working with new parents i do notice and i can remember feeling it myself a sense of just not being prepared for the reality of life with a new baby how can that be mark when there's so much information and advice so readily available online in books and from everyone you speak to
1: i i think ever since you know i qualified as a midwife in 1994 and and postnatal care has always been if you like the 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 poor person in the, the the makeup of the service You know, attention has never really been focused in innovative ways to improve what we do postnatally. You just look at the breastfeeding rates, you know, they haven't changed over all that time. We've said it so many times. The initiation rates have changed. Why? Well, probably because they've been auditing initiation rates inside the organisation. You know, so a baby looks at a breast now and has initiated breastfeeding. So we've got...
0: Uh, ah, so you're not saying that the initiation rates are say, have changed. You're saying that the numbers have been recorded in a more positive way.
1: I don't want to be cynical, but it, it could be because it's related to fiscal matters and auditing against certain, you know, kind of outcomes that are required in order to um, cast the institution in a better light. So we... we Oh, you sick. Well, maybe, but we, you know, we've become better at recording initiation rates, so they're way up at 80 plus, but longevity of breastfeeding hasn't changed. And I would hazard a guess that that's got something to do with the fact that we haven't focused on the postnatal period very much. We've seen it diminish in terms of contact time. You know, when I first qualified, we were going first day, probably second day, definitely third day, uh, definitely fifth day. Um, And then we'd go on the 10th day and we wouldn't necessarily discharge women then. They they would carry on because, of course, midwives legally have a responsibility not less than 10 days, not more than 28 days. So the postnatal visit regime has changed drastically uh, over the years.
0: Yeah, you posted something on our Facebook page about the World Health Organization recommendations. Yeah, they they
1: recommend within 24 hours and then third day uh, as, as a minimum.
0: At least two uh, visits. Well,
1: yeah. Well, at least two visits, and if
0: possible, a third.
1: I'm going to hazard a guess that people would disagree with me, but I think the postnatal visiting regime has been, again, um, being defined by matters other than the physical health and well-being of the of the young family.
0: Well, this seems to focus only on the baby. The thing I'm looking at yeah, it says um, it's about newborn it, it quotes numbers of newborn deaths and so on so the these home visits they don't mention the mother the father yeah. the well-being of the family they're all about the health of the newborn we're back to what we were talking about in the last episode where all that matters is a healthy yeah we,
1: we kind of are although you know when 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 these professionals these epidemiological professionals are looking at the data they're all looking at it from different perspectives so so what what kind of needs to happen in what about needs but what would benefit us to happen is if all disciplines came together and had a more systems way of looking at things because when individuals look at things from their perspective all you get is a sort of like a a bespoke well not not bespoke but a kind of a collage uh, of disparate perspectives that, that isn't really in harmony with what's going overall. You know, within the research world, a chap called um, Ken Choli, who's a New York researcher, coined the term bricolage. And the bricolage in research terms was bringing together research disciplines into a kind of a systems way of looking at what's going on. You know, I don't think you can separate what's going on postnatally in early family development from what's going on in society at large. You, you really can't. You know, that brilliant article that you sent, sent me and is on our page about the impact of motherhood being kind of downgraded.
0: Right, this is a- Antonella Gambotto-Burke. Uh, um, incidentally, another Pinter and Ar- Martin uh, author um, in The Guardian on Saturday. Should women really be rushing back to work after giving
1: God, birth? what a brilliant article. I mean, I thought that was staggeringly good. As, as she yeah. placed the kind of lessering of priority or the downgrading of the role of mother and how potentially, generationally, the impact it's going to have on our ability to love and connect could be profound. I mean, it it sets us on a discussion about epigenetics if we're not careful. Bowlby was saying this. You know, Freud was saying this. You know, you, you break that attachment from primary carer and young mammal, you know, who's developed... Only 25 percent of brain development, I think is that what it says um, is it, happened at birth and as a, as a mammal, I think we're one of the most vulnerable mammals that need our primary carer desperately.
0: Yes. so we talk about a fourth trimester, an extra three months when the baby just needs to be as as connected, physically connected to the mother almost, as during the previous nine months.
1: I, I think the implications are staggering because our society is encouraging return to work as soon as possible. She make, makes the point that it's kind of held up as heroic for a mother to be back at work very quickly.
0: There's no economic value in mothers staying None at, at home. It's As I think she quotes, is it was it George yeah. Osborne, saying that staying at home is a lifestyle yeah. choice?
1: Yeah, almost like a pejorative type Uh, way of talking about it well we're going to pay long-term prices for it and you know i worked until recently in a secure mental mental health facility a rehab facility and um clients in there who were diagnosed inverted commas with so-called personality disorder almost to a person had had attachment deficit issues as children so that the pattern of their behaviour rooted in a bio neurophysical aberration because of a lack of contact to a primary carer resulted in patterns of relating and patterns of trying to make sense of life that weren't working for them. Are you
0: suggesting perhaps that nannies followed by boarding school, followed by, oh, I don't know, being in the cabinet might have something to do with the way the country's being uh, run at the moment?
1: Maybe. We, we live, I would say, in a post-industrial age. If you look at our education system, our education system was originally designed for a pre-industrial age in as much as farm workers needed to read if they were going to work in factories. So schools came into place in order to serve the the, the industrialization of our economy. Now we live in a post-industrial age or fast moving towards post industrialization where knowledge-based workers are what's required. Innovative, creative ways of thinking outside of the norm. You know, things, ways of thinking that isn't harking back to the past but is looking for new possibilities that haven't existed before. And my guess is you're not going to get it in a state system that is getting everyone to the amorphous average that only exists in the hallucination of statisticians.
0: It puts people in a very difficult position because economically, you know, a lot of us have to work.
1: In today's economic situation, what's a a, a young family to do?
2: My name is Emma Cantrell and I have two children and I founded the charity First Days um, here in Berkshire in Wokingham um where i live i started the charity um when my second child was 10 weeks old because when you have a 10 week old and an 18 month old there's really nothing else to do but start a charity <laughs> Um, so um and the reason i did it was because uh, my neighbors kept turning up on my doorstep and they were neighbors who um we were kind of on waving in the street terms and that was it didn't know their names and they kind of spotted that i had gone from bump to baby and were turning up with all of their stuff um clothes and toys and cot beds you know because i don't know if they perhaps thought i didn't have it or well like, the reality was actually they needed to get rid of it out of their houses And um, my husband called it middle class fly tipping because it kind of felt like they saw an opportunity to get rid of their stuff. And we did not need it. We didn't need 40 size nought to three month vests, no matter how dribbly the baby was. It was just unnecessary. And I kind of thought there must be more we can do with this stuff than keep it for ourselves, put it in our loft and then take it to the charity shop and at the same time um, a friend of mine was doing some research in the local community about the needs of single parents and um, what she found was that actually in our area a lot of their um, kind of emotional and well-being needs were being met by statutory services and other people but there was a real lack of practical support and um, you know having a, a lack of money, uh, inability to buy things for your baby can lead to so many other problems if it's left to escalate. So I kind of thought, okay, I'll, I'll think about this charity. I started it by applying for a grant, which I thought I'd never get. And then I got the grant and I thought, oh, I've got to
0: do it now. <laughs> yeah. now <you're> <laughs> so I
2: built a website and did it. And here we are three years later.
0: So what what's it like now? It's must have grown.
2: It's grown hugely. We are now a registered charity. We have just we're just in the process of recruiting our first member of proper staff that isn't me. We have offices and a warehouse and we've helped over a thousand families. And that kind of ranges from where families need maybe one thing, like a new mattress for a cot or a um even, you know, they've fallen short that month and they need a bag of nappies to people who have absolutely nothing and need absolutely everything for the baby they're about to give birth to so it's a real range of support we offer it's grown hugely and we've done a lot to advise other people around the country and who want to set up similar things as well so we're kind of helping other people serve their communities in the same way
0: now, I know that there are um, NCT baby bundle schemes. Is there, are there other things like that going on all over the country?
2: I've noticed a bit of a trend in um similar way to how food banks were set up um, from a religious starting point in churches. Um, there are a few kind of baby bank type things that have sprung up around which are connected to churches. And then um, I think there are a few other organisations who do similar things slightly different to us in how they're set up in that they piggyback on other charities so it might be the church as a registered charity that they're kind of part of. you know it's a project as part of that yeah I mean there are other things and we're certainly looking at expanding into the neighboring towns around us as well
0: right and and how do you get your stuff
2: um we take donations from people in the community and we actually have far more donations than we can possibly handle far more inquiries than we have room to store stuff which is brilliant people are desperate for a way to help other people I mean they're definitely desperate to get rid of their stuff like everyone is but we find that people really want it to go to something meaningful even more than they want to sell it, so you know that I've had so many people will drop off, you know, the really fancy designer buggy and say, "Oh, you know, I could get a hundred pounds for this, but if it could go to a, you know, a, a family who really need it and would love it as much as we have, then we'd prefer that." So it's brilliant. People are really generous, and they're looking for a way to be generous and help other people in their in their town. I think the local thing is really important. Mm. You know, I think especially in a place that is privileged. Like here, people want to, they 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 want to help those people who they do know
0: are there who don't have as much as them. Yeah, I think of you as like the Robin Hood of of babies.
2: Yeah, I love that. That's that's what my dad calls me, actually.
0: (laughs) Yeah, taking from the privileged of Berkshire. Yeah,
2: (laughs) we try and have a culture where there's no stigma attached to families approaching us for help. You know, it's very much like. You've got a a practical problem that needs solving. Here we are, we'll solve it for you. We, We try not to use the word charity
0: as much as we can. I loved what you did at Christmas when you kind of just had the stuff and people could choose, so they were like Christmas shopping without any money.
2: That was honestly the absolute highlight of the entire running of first days was that thing we did at christmas so we got loads and loads of christmas toys um new brand new actually and nearly new and we we put a call out i put a call out on facebook and said i'll be in this village hall it was like a thursday morning for an hour if you've got any toys new or nearly new that you want to help local families and it was overwhelming i think i loaded up my car 3 times People came and dropped off stuff and people had been to the shops, bought things and bought them straight over. So people really wanted to give to give. And then we went um, into one of the less advantaged communities and we laid out um, a hall like a shopping event, basically, and invited families to come and choose their Christmas presents. And it was fantastic. And we did it in a way that we said that if they wanted to, they could donate what they could afford for the presents. And it was brilliant. And these families, you know, they they're proud of the way they budget and they're proud of the money they earn. And it was very much, you know, I think one family came in and they got all their presents for their four children. Absolutely tons of presents. And I think, you know, that they donated what they could afford. And it was just so lovely. And it was so lovely to be able to let them do their Christmas shopping with dignity. And they felt like, you know, it was a transaction. It was it was fantastic.
0: That's just brilliant. You should get in the schools and get them to do that instead of Operation Christmas Child.
2: Oh, here, here. I agree. Yeah.
0: So on top of the financial pressures that you witness, what sort of things do you see new families dealing with?
2: It's so complex. And I think financial pressures cause so many other pressures as well. You know, I think we obviously we see we see children who just don't have access to the same things as their peers you know all of the kind of baby groups and you know there aren't many that are for free so you have you know there's a real divide in what people can access and that can cause real loneliness for the mums you know when you've got a new baby it's a really it can be a really vulnerable time and we come across mums who don't who don't really socialize with other parents they don't know where to find them they don't have them they don't have the money to go to the groups um and you know i think that can really cause some isolation and everyone knows the effects of isolation as a mum as a new mum it can cause all sorts of problems so we do see a lot of isolated parents and i think that causes everyone needs someone to be able to say is this normal and my baby's doing this what's yours doing and and that kind of thing so i think um we do see a lot of lonely people which is obviously awful. And I think that's only been made worse with funding being cut to children's centres and that kind of thing, where it would have been a place they could go to different groups and stuff. There's just not the provision anymore.
0: I can imagine you gnashing your teeth at the budget this week.
2: I was so angry. One of the websites had done a budget calculator and I sat there. I worked out that my husband and I would be, um, I think it was something like £500 a year better off. thought, fine. And then I put in as if I was a single mum on my current salary um, with you know everything as it is. And I would have been £2,500 a year worse off. And that would actually mean that I probably couldn't work which, you know, that seems ridiculous. And then I put in the details of another family I know um, who are in a a far worse off situation than I would be. And they were about £1,800 a year worse off. And, you know, that's the difference between paying the rent and not paying the rent, which, you know, the the knock-on effects is just astonishing. I just, I cannot, I cannot get my head around how people in government have signed this off and said "Yep, yeah, this is what we need to do to uh you know do whatever it is they're trying to achieve it's
0: impossible isn't it i just can't square it
2: it's shocking i just um absolutely livid and you know the i can't i just can't see how you know what we're going to see now is services like first days being used more and more and more more use of food banks people having to leave employment because they can't afford to work because they can't Afford the childcare and everything else. It's just astonishing. I can't, I cannot see how this can benefit vast sections of society.
0: And as you said earlier, we are in a privileged area. Hmm. And yet this is a really important endeavour. Yeah. What is it like in areas that aren't as privileged as Berkshire?
2: This is what has always shocked me um, with first days, And I kind of feel like if it's a needed service, in Wokingham, in Berkshire, which is regularly voted uh, or found to be one of the best places to raise a family, how much is it needed in other places, in our city centres and, you know, all these other deprived places? It must have... have crying out
0: for it. it is depressing. Financial pressures, as you say, then lead on to all kinds of other, the isolation, the relationships.
2: There's one family who um, I met at that Christmas event. They both worked full time, the parents, and they worked basically in, uh, you know, opposite shifts to one another. So one of them worked nights, one of them worked days, so they could still look after the children. They never, ever saw each other. They couldn't afford holidays. They hardly ever had time off at the same time. It's just, I mean, what sort of life is that? It's just, I can't, you know, it's just, like, you can't imagine how miserable that must be. And what have you got at the end of it? Do you have a relationship with that person or, you know, you've raised your children, but it's, I, I just... Thank goodness you're out there doing this. I mean, I, I'll never forget a family I took um, some stuff to and they'd asked for clothes for their three children um, for the summer. They had winter clothes, didn't have summer clothes. So I took three bags of clothes and I just put in the bags some toys and books. I thought, you know, it'd be nice, give them something extra. And this little boy got hold of this fire engine that I'd put in his little bag. And it was like, I mean, you've never... My children have never been that grateful for a toy. And, you know, they're very polite, lovely children. And it was just... You just want to do more for children like that who have obviously got so little. It's just, it is sad. And it, it, you know, you have to just think you're doing your bit. And, uh, you know, making small changes is okay because it it can feel
0: overwhelming. Yeah. Even in Berkshire. So, Although this this is going out fairly nationally, though we are still small, um, would it be helpful for you to give out uh, website details and things like that?
2: Absolutely. The website is firstdays.net and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. And if anyone is interested in setting up a similar um, service in their area, then get in touch because um, I can give you absolutely loads of advice, especially maybe how not to do it, because I've learned a lot. Um, over the last couple of years. But, you know, we can give some some really um, useful advice on how to set up and it's not as difficult as you think. I just think if someone can do it with a child who wakes up every 45 minutes for the first two years
0: of their life in that two years, you know, anyone can do it. Yes, you've done brilliantly. (laughs) Thank you. So I've been talking to Emma Cantrell of First Days Charity and contact details that she's just given out, firstdays.net. We'll also put on Facebook. Um, And thanks very much for speaking to us.
2: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. So that was Emma Cantrell from First Days charity that um the robin hood charity of of um, berkshire lovely.
1: i mean the way the way we're going with um, the kind of administration that we've got government wise at the moment there's going to be a bigger demand upon voluntary sector organizations to be plugging these gaps you know we, we spoke a little bit earlier about post-industrialization of course we've seen structural changes in how the family works you know very rarely these days do people live in extended family groups where there's generational input into family wisdom we're desperate for compassionate women and men like that
0: do you know what i think that even when there is uh, mothers are taught to not trust their parents in matters of child rearing and being a new family that there's a lot of well you know that that was 30 years ago things are different and they are
1: sorry i was going to say one of your articles talks about eight eight mistakes yeah. one of them is listening to your parents
0: yeah exactly yeah. you know you might need your mum there and being told to not trust her yeah okay so she might be you know she might never have breastfed and um she might be saying things like you know if you get, let me give the baby a bottle you can go and get a sleep and that's coming from a really good place and it is difficult for a new mum to kind of counter that with I want to parent differently to to what you did because that sounds so critical but even so I don't think we should be telling women not to trust their mums
1: we're in danger of just Imagining we're standalone generations.
0: But I think, you know, not necessarily does every woman need her mother there, but the kind of loss of the care of a, a generation of women. Is part of what has contributed to making things difficult. And there's the article that you posted from the Daily Beast, um, which is it's a couple of years yeah. old, but it's very relevant. Why are America's postpartum practices so rough on new mothers? And it really does focus on the the loss of the lying in period. In some cultures, it's not been lost; it's still there. But when I talk to antenatal groups and I say, you know, if you lived in I don't know China you would be expected to stay at home for four weeks and you'd be looked after and someone would bring you soup every day and they all go, oh, I don't think I could do that. It would drive me mad. Yeah.
1: I mean, not only the fiscal pressures, there's all kinds of other pressures upon new mothers and, and fathers. It cuts completely across what is considered a, a social norm. And, um, you know, not wanting to sound defeatist, it, it's quite difficult to, to, to wonder how we're going to overcome that. I was thinking... In the context of birth last week, how we're focusing so much on good birth, inverted commas, you know, birth that works for the couple. And that's, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the kind of birth that uh, extremists on both ends think are good. It means what the couple experience as a good birth. And I wonder sometimes that we're in danger if we're not careful of having a good birth, but it's happening on the Titanic. You know, the structures, the birth structures need transformation, really. And uh, then there would be a, a more efficacious trickle down of effect. You know, all of those lying in periods have evolved over. When I say evolved, I'm talking about structural ev- evolution. Yes, yeah, socially, yeah, socially evolved. evolved over generations and work well. And I'm sure if we were in them, we would have our own reactions to them. I was at a Father's Day in Bristol yesterday, speaking to a PhD student. Do you know, cot death is almost zero or very low rates within Pakistani communities. Mm-hmm. And they, they from studying those communities, they noticed that women sleep alone for a very quite an extended period in the early postnatal period, because that is kind of culturally the norm. It's it's it, it's except with the baby. Yeah, um, there's, all, there's all kinds of things that go on within that cultural setting that seems to be having an impact on sudden infant cot death rates. Now, they're the kind of studies that I find very interesting. Because if you look at groups of people and social dynamics where the results in that community don't fit into the standard, there we're going to find something that's going to throw something in our way of thinking that will lead to possibility. You know, I feel very strongly that change is overrated because change has as its referencing point what's gone on in the past. I was in a a birth uh, conference where some you know how old you are, Karen. Uh, mm-hmm. when what you're hearing as a new innovation you've lived through before. <laughs> right? And someone was speaking very eloquently about caseloading and all this sort of stuff and the difference it was gonna make. And I'm thinking, this is deja vu, I've heard this before. Now that's to be that's to be understood because our thinking patterns are conditioned by the way we've always thought. It's very hard to come up with something new when when you're using the past as your reference point we need something thrown into our thinking that's outside of our normal frame of reference that can add to our ability to see different possibilities occurring in the future that haven't happened before.
0: So you're saying rather than looking back, we could be looking across other cultures.
1: And what happens when you add something to your thinking that's outside of your current paradigm is it offers new possibilities. I think we we would benefit from looking at a discontinuity with our ways of thinking in the past. What can we add to our thinking that will generate possibilities that haven't existed before in the world? You know... And uh, that's where I think the biggest changes in uh, all kinds of care delivery will come.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting stuff. And I'm and, and it's quite sort of deep on a philosophical level, but I'm aware that it's straying off the topic. So the pressures on new families, what are we looking at here? We've talked about the financial pressures. We're looking a little bit here at the social pressures and what it's like not to have support. What about um, the way people think about and plan for the postnatal period? What do you think it's like for um, parents antenatally when you meet them you talk a lot to dads what do they expect
1: they're juggling when to plan their paternity leave in the first instance so because you cannot unless you're having a planned cesarean section I mean even if you're having a planned in so-called induction of labor that can take up to 72 hours Mm. to get started so so men depending on their and same-sex partners for that matter depending on their careers and their jobs have to juggle when they book their paternity leave. That two weeks of paid paternity leave,
0: as we know, not enough.
1: Yeah, I, I, I believe a man or a same-sex partner should be looking to guard, in some ways, access uh, to the mother and baby, so that yeah. she has an opportunity. I think that's quite important, but not to be overemphasised. Yeah. A-
0: I find that um, because the the main, the majority of the work I do antenatally is breastfeeding education, that the fathers and partners who come along to those sessions start at least by feeling that they don't have a role.
1: I I think that's true. We spent a lot of time talking last time about involving men in the education process around feeding and the impact that that can have on a a man's sense of being involved with feeding without having to be doing the feeding himself. You know, he can be looking for the support needs uh, that he sees and plug that gap you know, when he when he realises that feeding will be quite demanding in terms of the time it takes. In the Birthing for Blokes programme, we talk about the practical levels of support he'll need to step into if he hasn't already.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'm talking about the very practical things around the house. Yeah. You know, not wanting to be gender stereotypical, but, you know, if, if a man hasn't been in a habit of being proactively involved in the running of the house, well then it's time for him to be opening up his consciousness to that possibility.
0: That's a really nice way of saying he's got to figure out how to use the washing machine.
1: A lot of the men in the programs that I run, uh, if they do something around the house, consider it they're due for brownie points.
0: They want to be thanked for it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the core components a reoccurring message of the book and the program is looking out for things around, around about your shared environment that need doing yeah. and begin to do them without the need to be praised. And without, I remember when I was a young father, if I did something around the house, I imagined I did it once I'd done it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's not the way it works, is no, it? These things
0: are relentless.
1: They're, it's ongoing. I do it once. I think, yeah, that's great. And then my, my you know, my partner, and my, my wife at the time would say, well, you know, you never do the, the washing up. And I said, well, I did do it. If you remember last week. <laughs> well done. I just think it's a broadening of perspective. Not all men, by any stretch of the imagination, you know. Not all men, absolutely. But but opening up that discussion so that we can have a, a discussion about it and also putting it in the context of oxytocin raising. When she sees at a conscious level or an unconscious level that he is doing stuff without needing to be thanked, he is actively engaged in the very practical day-to-day running of a shared environment, it potentially raises her oxytocin.
0: Mm-hmm. I think there's also potential for them to have a role with the baby that they're not necessarily expecting. They may imagine the kind of, you know, three, four months old when you can whoosh a baby up into the air and make noises and faces and giggle and that kind of thing. But actually with a newborn, having that extra pair of hands, somebody else to settle the baby sometimes, someone to hand the baby to when you've been feeding for an hour and you're desperate for the loo, someone to keep you company.
1: Yeah, lots of them to think about in terms of very practical, earthy support. You know, I, I know we've seen quite a growth in the whole postnatal doula area in the UK. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
0: Um, well, yes, speaking as a postnatal doula, I do have thoughts on that.
1: <laughs> you know, I kind of forgot you were a postnatal doula. Did you? Yeah, I know you do uh, intrapartum douling, don't you, as well?
0: Um, I've I've been at one birth, but most of my work is is just. Turning up after the baby's born and making cups of tea and sandwiches and listening and listening and listening. I think the majority of my work has been arriving at two weeks after the baby's born and the partner's just returning to work and the mother feels quite alone and all at sea without him. And that feeling it's not something you can convey to them antenatally and say there's going to be yeah. this moment where you may feel like you don't have a role but you, oh my god you're going to be missed when you've gone
1: yeah no I get that but, but can you say a little bit more about how how you've functioned in a postnatal doula sense because I know there'll yeah. be midwives out there listening to this that are you know they're just getting to grips with their uh, birth doulas and now we've got these postnatal. yeah that, oh my goodness who what, are these what women what are they
0: doing what do they do? Um, and we're not ever there to replace professional care We're not there instead of a midwife, we're there to do whatever it is the mum needs to just um, start adjusting, transitioning into her new role. And that will include a lot of practical stuff, literally turn up, make a cup of tea sit down find out what it is that she needs uh, you after usually quite a long period of listening to her telling you about what her day has been like or if it's the first visit she'll often talk about the birth Um, and many times i find myself feeling like i might be the first person to listen just listen to her and not tell her what she experienced or what it was like or what my opinion of it is and you know there's so much it's such a huge huge thing a huge event in somebody's life And your entire world has changed. It's like the tectonic plates of your family have shifted. And there's a lot to debrief in that. And even Mm -hmm. as they're talking, you can see them realizing what's happening. So there's a lot of listening. There's a lot of practical stuff often like just laundry, bed making, empty the dishwasher, um, change the water in the flowers, and um, a lot of signposting, a lot of book lending, um, if that's what people want. Because some people do like to have a book. Yeah. And they'll all have Gina Ford, so I quite like oh. to be able to bring in something a bit more attachment, parenting, um, to give them another perspective. Um, something like What Every Parent Needs to Know um, is a really nice book. I think Margot, Margot Sunderland.
1: Yeah, she's awesome, you know.
0: This year, you've met her, haven't you? Go right.
1: Well, I haven't met her. But she, <laughs> uh, you know, we've got an adopted son and she she talks a lot about um, the impact of being a looked after child and attachment. Mm. Um, yeah awesome in terms yeah. of uh, neurophysiology and yes. biology as as well as anything else
0: that's a book I feel you know it's in the pack if I had like six books I had to give to every new parents that would certainly be one of them
1: yeah awesome
0: it's a practical thing and it is perhaps being there um, in place of the partner when he's gone back to work I have had visits where it's been before he's gone it's been much earlier than that and I've been doing things like helping them bath the baby for the first time, because they're feeling very nervous about handling the baby and um, being a reassuring presence. So I don't kind of go in to say, oh, yeah, you're doing it right. Or this is what you should be doing. But more kind of, well, do you feel like that's okay? It's okay. You you can make that decision. It's,
1: do, do you know, I, it prompts me because I think over the years, uh, and I'm speaking as a midwife, uh, I've heard my colleagues become concerned about the erosion of a midwife's role you know and it's usually because they you know when breastfeeding supporters came in midwife some midwives were a bit tentative about that saying well we should be the professional involved with breastfeeding support yeah but they're not are they (laughs) when hcas came in that gave breastfeeding support and and now there's a little bit of a move to hcas being actively involved in the community you know doing the blood spot test on the fifth day doing baby weighing which is almost a neurotic obsession. Well, I've
0: had, I have a colleague who refers to clinic junkies. Yeah. And I can totally get that because I was one and I would be there every week. I'd have gone more often if it had been available.
1: Well, it's the early weighing that's an issue. You know, we've spoken about brown fat stores that are laid down in latter pregnancy so that the early feeding initiation, that brown fat store is, is used up. So weight loss is is normative, you know, and the 10% weight gain by the 10th day is maybe a good measure of building that weight up again but weighing on the third day then the fifth day and then
0: as a breastfeeding counselor such a huge part of my work is um, responding to that
1: oh. terrible
0: terrible worry that people have the anxiety when baby's been weighed yeah. and has lost some weight
1: it we're back to the whole discussion around evidence not to be believed but to be tested and investigated you know it
0: needs to be put at least put in context
1: And uh, I have compassion for my midwifery colleagues, but I think it's time for us to be exploring the role of extra professional. I don't know what the word is. You know, people who are paraprofessionals being involved with postnatal care. You know, I I wouldn't like to suggest that the reason postnatal care has been neglected over the years is because there isn't anything for anyone to fix particularly.
0: And I'd add to that it's not because midwives don't care, don't want to or can't. It is time constraints isn't it it's financial
2: yeah
0: and i'm painfully aware that my work as a postnatal doula creates a two-tier system where some people can afford better care than others and it it gives me an ethical dilemma um so this is a good time to mention doula uk's access
1: fund doula uk you know they don't sponsor us you know or anything like that but they are heroes as far as i'm concerned in the fact that they give the opportunity to families that don't have the financial resources to to gain that kind of support yeah. so three three cheers for them for sure
0: yeah it's not widely known but yes there is there is the access fund which means the doula then is working voluntarily she gets her expenses covered by the fund yeah. basically
1: yeah they're they're an, a, an enormously compassionate group of people i, mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm, i think he's been prompted but of course the dutch model of uh, postnatal care, what is it? Guaranteed, uh, is it eight visits? But uh, having someone visiting every day, you know, whose experience and expertise is on supporting, you know, the fledgling family in those early challenging days, has got to be something worth a look
0: just the consistent the continuity of care yeah having someone you can trust yeah that's that's huge
1: you know so the who recommendation the unicef recommendation is probably not being fulfilled in in quite a few areas because it does root the postnatal care in the domicile or home you know and it also you know it suggests that the uh the three visits should all occur inside the home. And that that makes sense from a systems thinking point of view or from a contextual point of view, because you get a feel for what's going on in the household. I'm not talking about judging the tidiness or anything like that. That would end up with us having white, middle-class, professional values applied to people that don't fit within our norm. Mm -hmm. But that kind of atmospheric sense, you know, like I'd walk into a house and I... Uterine infections can be smelt at the door. You know, when a uterus is infected, the smell is so distinctive and pungent that you know straight away. Mm. So those kind of things, you know, are not so apparent if we're not visiting at home.
0: So there's that level of medical um, being clued in. And there's also just the fact that providing the support in the home is so much more effective. And I'm saying that from a purely non-evidenced point of view, but that's what people want. That's why they pay for doulas. Yeah. So the last thing I want to just um, talk about in terms of what it's like for new parents adjusting is the whole parenting advice issue. And there was a recent post on the Analytical Armadillo blog about can bad parenting advice result in death, which is a terrifying headline, but I can see the point she's making where most parenting advice seems to be um, just out of line with the norms of what babies and parents need Um, but she's also pointing out that it's it's kind of parent pleasing so I'd say kind of parent focused
1: yeah maybe because it's market driven you know a lot of these experts or specialists aren't there is no regulation now I think regulation is a two-sided coin you know often regulation um, involves in setting up a cartel (laughs) <laughs> you know, so that only people with certain qualifications can give certain information. I'm not sure that's a great way to go. Mm. But on the flip side of that, you know, we end up with people with with limited uh, professional education giving av- advice. Oh, that's, gotcha. um, so how
0: often do you see on Breakfast TV um, a particular um, maternity nurse who shall yeah. remain nameless but sells a lot yeah. of books yeah. giving breastfeeding advice advice for a start which uh, yeah. a breastfeeding supporter wouldn't do no. but also absolutely no breastfeeding training whatsoever
1: yeah that's scary stuff isn't it we we live in a media so- socially connected generation which should heighten us in our not su- well suspicion yeah but the you know the notion of testing what we hear against other voices is so important. And I, I'm very aware of it, and you, you tell me I'm very generous, but for me it's a, it's an application of a scientific principle. You know, if someone is saying something with conviction, you know, I, I want to understand what they're saying yeah. before I set up a straw man of their opinion to knock down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a it's a pause that you have before you judge.
1: I mean judgment is necessary because you know if you if like for example that adjustment thing that you can put on a baby seat so that you can swaddle a baby that makes the baby a better projectile should you have a crash. You know that support breaks when you have a crash at a certain speed. Yeah it's on this article but, isn't it. You know and, and that seems to me criminal.
0: It does. And this is a, an extreme example obviously you can find decent evidence to support other practices being recommended um say for example simple something as simple as gina ford's routines or putting you, yeah. encouraging you to put the baby in their own bedroom there's there's plenty of evidence that putting that a baby sleeping alone in their own room is at a higher risk of cot death
1: sure and and there's plenty and i was speaking to this phd student whose name escapes me and she was making the point that thankfully now there isn't this blanket Um, discouragement of co-sleeping. Yeah. Because what we were doing as midwives, we're telling women, don't fall asleep with your baby.
0: Really? Because I think there is. Parents I speak to say on on leaving hospital, they are currently getting a mini lecture about the dangers of co-sleeping.
1: Yeah, they are, but there is a move. Now, it might take a while to trickle down, but there is a move and because we know pretty much now that if you encourage a woman to get up out of bed and sit on a sofa to breastfeed, she, she's putting herself more, they're putting themselves more at risk yeah. of, of uh, sudden infant death syndrome. And, and what drives them to do that? The advice that they've been getting up until now for midwives and the, the midwives bed. are obviously constrained by the information that they're being given. So what's happening with epidemiologically driven advice is that a blanket um, uh, advice uh, stroke, you know, information giving regime is being prescribed. And uh, that's that's poor, isn't it? We know a breastfeeding woman takes a shape in bed when she's breastfeeding that that um, keeps the baby safe.
0: Yeah. So not a guarantee of safety, but certainly a reduction in risk
1: definitely not a guarantee of safety and there needs to be all kinds of discussions around pre-existing medical conditions discussion around alcohol and all that kind of stuff that's important Uh, uh, and understanding that a man's intuitive spatial awareness to, to to being in bed it's very going to be very different from the woman who's feeding. All of that stuff yeah. needs discussing and then a choice needs to be made by the woman. Yes,
0: absolutely. It needs to be the parent's informed choice. So rather than a do not do this, it's dangerous. It needs to yeah. be. These are the risks. These are some ways of reducing those risks. So um, shall we listen to what Naomi has to say about postnatal doulas?
1: Hey, I, know, I, I know Naomi. Of course you know. do,
0: Mark. Today we're talking to Naomi Kemeny and Naomi is a trained midwife um, but she works as a postnatal doula and she's the author of Nurturing New Families, a Guide for Supporting New Parents and Their Newborn Babies um, which is published by our friends Pinter and Martin and she runs training for postnatal doulas. Hi Naomi.
3: Hello there, thanks for inviting me on today.
0: We're really pleased to be able to talk to you. So, most people who've even heard of doulas tend to assume that a doula is a birth companion, but you're solely focused on postnatal work and helping new families. What brought you to that?
3: Um, Well, you're absolutely right. Um, Most people are more familiar with the birth doula and haven't necessarily heard of postnatal doulas. Birth doulas um, do offer, um, within their sort of package of care, as it were, um, some postnatal visits following. um, And some, in fact, do give a sort of ongoing postnatal support a lot of birth doulas um don't offer the postnatal as a a separate thing so um that's what i do i work as a postnatal doula solely the reason i do that is i do i have a passion for the um for babies and i also um i feel very very strongly that women don't have that support that they need after they've had their babies and therefore they really need somebody that can come in what the postnatal doula offers is, um, first of all, something which is a luxury, which is um, continuity of care. And although I've got a background in midwifery, um, and I know that was something that you know midwives want to offer, it's not always um, possible. And that's something, as a postnatal doula we can do because we offer a pattern of care, which typically for maybe for one baby would be, say, for the first week, we would go in three mornings a week and then um, for the first couple of weeks, then two mornings and then one morning. Or say if it's with multiples, I'm with multiples and with twins at the moment, and they need a much higher level of care. So I've been doing um three or four mornings a week, and then I'll go down to three and then to two. So what we offer in this time, what we're doing is we're actually there to enable them to have that lying in period, which is is still happens in, in many countries, but has really died out in the West pretty well. And um what I took what I mean by the lying in period is the time when new mothers and new Families really need to have that time, just to bond with their babies, just to actually cherish that time, to be left in peace, to get to know their babies, and to just embrace that new life. And I think the pressure of society nowadays is just to, you know, get up, get get back on your feet, get out there, you know, go to the meetups and the coffee mornings and whatever it is, and just show everyone that you're, you know, you're back in your jeans and your baby's got a fantastic routine and it's all okay. And it's not always all okay. And there's so much focus on the birth nowadays. And I find that we're there just to be there to support the new mums as they get back on their feet. So in terms of practical care, um, I mean, I absolutely love cooking. So I make a, a point of making lovely food for my clients. Just even making a sandwich for a really ravenous mother is, is, is fantastic. Yeah,
0: I make a lot of sandwiches.
3: <laughs> and I'll just make sure there's food there. One of my clients, in fact, the other day, she said, she said, it's just so amazing that you just know, you know, you just know when I need a drink and you know, when I need to eat and their focus is on the newborn babies. So they need somebody to focus on them. And that's really what we do. It's um, about being on top of their needs and Mm. being able to anticipate their needs and be able to, you know, be very sort of intuitive, really, not be asking them all the time. What do you want? Just do it. Yeah, just do it. Sometimes at the beginning of a visit, where well, quite often I once they, you know, sometimes they want to chat about what's been happening over the last twenty-four hours and then sometimes I'll say, Is anything particular, you know, that you need me to do today? You know, they'll say, Oh, can you just sort that pile of laundry out or can you do this or that? And sometimes it's it's for the first hour maybe that that they just need to talk. And yeah, yeah. I'm not there as a medical professional. And I'm not emotionally involved. And I think those two are really important issues with postnatal doulas and the relationship with the new mothers. Not making judgments and just being really empathic and understanding is really what we're there for. And yeah. that's hopefully, you know, what we can offer.
0: A lot of the people they're hanging out with socially are going to be other new mothers who just aren't in a place to listen to a big debrief because they'll probably have things of their own.
3: Absolutely, yes. I mean, and that's something when we when we are there, initially we need to be really um but to listen because sometimes they may have had a traumatic birth or they want to debrief i'm not an expert in in anything i have a lot of experience but i'm not an expert expert in debriefing birth experiences and you know i would know where to signpost if i felt they needed more you know for Mm. instance crisis or or another organization and that's you know with postnatal doulas we're not we um obviously we do a training we're always learning and mothers teach us so much and that's what i always say to the moms you know you know you know your baby if they ask me something it's it's about them it's about encouraging them because so many moms i arrive and they're just spinning they're completely you know they're covered in books they're surrounded in questions you just like do this Shall i do this method Shall i do that and what do you think and it's it's just about just encouraging them just to really just sort of tune into it into what feels right for them
0: yeah I was surprised in your book, I think, that you quoted Sarah Ockwell-Smith saying that 82% of new mothers um, have been given advice that goes against their instincts.
3: Yes, incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and, um, and I think when they're given advice, we're just programmed to take it, as it were. Mm. And, this, and, and, and as a new mother, everything is new. Everything is a new experience. Yeah.
0: When you're uh, feeling very vulnerable and uncertain, anybody who sa- says with any degree of authority at all, try doing this. Seems like the answer.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and other mothers can, with all, with all, all, you know, good intention, they can be the worst because they'll go to a meet up and they'll, you know, other mothers will say, "Oh, I did this. My baby was doing that."
0: What sort of challenges do you find for yourself as a postnatal doula?
3: I think sometimes, just sometimes, to 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 understand that, that the birth, maybe they didn't get what they want, maybe they felt sort of disappointed, and yes, they've got the baby, and that's all that matters. But maybe things didn't go to plan. You know, it's hard to. I mean, all I can do is support them and and just yeah. listen. Really, one of. I mean, it's not a major challenge, but I, th- I know that um a lot of doula's say that it's strange being a postnatal doula because you might, then we might find a situation where there's actually nothing to do. You might go to a house where baby's asleep, you know, mom is asleep, the food's done, everything's done, and. Sometimes it's not about what you're doing, it's just about your presence and the fact that because I'm downstairs, say, with the twins, which I was yesterday, and mum was felt really comfortable about going upstairs and just going to sleep and you know and that was it and I could just be there and sometimes postnatal would say yes but I just sat there and had coffee and I, I was just chatting for an hour.
0: <laughs> yeah I've been in that where I've had a baby asleep on me mum asleep upstairs and dad's come home for lunch and he's just looked at me like why are we paying you?
3: <laughs> yeah this looks good can you just put the baby down and make me some lunch? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah and then other things might be um sometimes you get kind of meltdowns which um, can happen at any time sometimes if you don't know mum that well they're trying to they, they feel like they need to keep up a show for you and oh, I yeah. always say even before I start I say you don't have to be dressed you know you don't have to come down and greet me fully made up and when they feel comfortable they often leave the door open or, or give me the key but sometimes you know you will get an unpre- unpredictable moment when the mum seems to be absolutely fine and then they just completely you know they they need to just have a complete breakdown and and have a good cry you know that's really normal another thing that sometimes postnatal dealers are um, I guess witness to or or become part of is um, you know the relationship with the partner the dynamics change dramatically well partners can feel very left out very um, frustrated you know particularly the mum's breastfeeding they might feel like they're they're not involved enough, and and again, that's something we can do to help as postnatal doulas. We can help, you know, give suggestions to the dad, you know, explain how important it is that the mom's kind of got her feeding station set up before she starts feeding, things like that, and encouraging him to have skin to skin with the baby, yeah, take baby out in the sling or whatever when mom's asleep. Yeah, there's a lot of family dynamics I would say that can sometimes be challenging.
0: And part of your role can be supporting the father, the
3: grandparents. Exactly. And I mean, I'm a grandmother myself, and I know what a precious time it is. And yeah, so we do, you know, we are involved in the family. Siblings can be obviously kicking off and feeling, you know, very, very affected by new babies. And that's another thing that, that we do a lot of. And, and one thing I try not to do is take this sibling away from the mom and the new baby because you know the sibling wants to be with the with the mom still included yeah more likely I would if the mom's happy I would take the baby in the other room or take the baby for a walk so she can keep up the routine with the older sibling which is is absolutely vital so yes I mean and at the same time I you know I play Lego with the kids I do cooking <laughs> with the kids and I have a lot of fun with a lot of toddlers and, and that's that's part of it um, and that's why it's a very all-round job really it's you yeah, know it you could be doing absolutely anything at any time yeah overall we're there just to make things easier for the mum so that she can have that time with the new baby
0: and you've recently developed some training for new postnatal doulas
3: yes I, I've always felt there's a place for um, a training course for people that absolutely 100% know that they only want to be a postnatal doula. Although all um, doula courses do have a postnatal component, they don't necessarily have a huge sort of um, variety of things that I feel is really important for postnatal doulas to um, have have explored in a training. So I got together two other colleagues, um, one very experienced postnatal doula who's also an NCT teacher and one experienced doula who's uh, a very experienced breastfeeding support person who's had a huge amount of experience in breastfeeding. And um, so together we've set up a training course um, and it's called Unique Postnatal, which is spelled Y-O-U-N-I-Q-U-E. And we had our first pilot course a few months back, um, which was accredited by Doula UK, which means that if anyone wants to just do the postnatal doula training, they can apply to go on that course, which is a three-day course. And at the moment, we're running them in and around London and the southeast. And we're also hoping, to. you know, we are going to be traveling with it. We've got one booked in York as well. One of the important components of a postnatal doula training course is some of it about birth, because Mm -hmm. obviously you can't go in as a postnatal doula and have no idea about what happens after a cesarean or what happened if she'd have to have a you know, what kind of birth she'd had. Yeah. So we do explore, you know, the, the what things that could have happened during birth. And the other very important thing that we do at the beginning of the course is um, reflections and debriefing on, on mm. the, their own births.
0: Absolutely crucial.
3: yes yeah, so, so within the course, we do debriefing and we talk about newborn birth, ph- baby physiology, care of the newborn, sleep, baby cues, things like that. And um, we also have a component, which is first aid, newborns yeah. um, and we also very importantly we cover the communication skills which is I believe a huge part of our job As all doulas need that yeah you know, we yeah. need to know how to listen we know we need to know how to empathize and then there's a, a very large part of it is about infant feeding and I also cover situations outside of the, the norm so um, multiples um, babies and mothers or parents with special needs um, so there's a lot in it. It sounds brilliant. Yes, yeah, thank you. Well, well, we've we've had great feedback so far. It's really exciting, and, and we've had so much um, positive support. So,
0: so how can people find out about this?
3: So we've got a Facebook page, which is called which is Unique Postnatal Doula, and we've just launched our website, which is very exciting, which is www.uniquepostnatal.co.uk. Um, And on there are all the courses, the upcoming courses. And, um, yeah, that's that's where to go to find out more.
0: Such a useful thing.
3: Thank you very much. That's great.
0: Thanks very much for talking to us today, Naomi.
3: All right. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well,
1: that was... Naomi and uh, her book Nurturing New Families is published by Pinter and Martin uh, you can find it on their website pinterandmartin.com. it's for the bargain price of 8 99 and we would recommend it for friends and family members who are supporting new mums and dads
0: and that's all we've got time for on this our fifth episode of Sprocast. now sponsored by Pinter and Martin who you can find at Pinterandmartin.com.
1: please remember to stay in touch with us on Twitter at Sprocast and our Facebook page read it <laughs> Facebook.com forward slash <laughs> And
0: we're, we're giggling because I have written on the script the word forward slash for Mark.
1: <laughs> we will try our best to bring you an August episode. We're not. We're going to do more than try our best. We're going to bring you an August episode. Summer holidays, on, Mark. Come. Oh, yeah, true. True. Anyway, we, we are going to do our best. Uh, to bring you an August episode. So it's it's, from me, Mark Harris, it's goodbye.
0: Always the optimist, Mark Harris. And from me, Karen Hall, slightly less optimistic. Bye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Editing and production is by Karen with technical assistance from Pete. Find us on facebook.com slash sprogcast.